Jason alluded to the fact that we are ascending church in his prayer. We are excited about world missions. And uh, since we are, we began a new uh, emphasis a couple of months ago, as you know, that we call To Every Nation. And you can read about that in your bulletin. You can pick up a flyer in the foyer if you want to uh, begin a prayer book. I I would really encourage you to do that, to three-hole punch these little uh, one- to two-page handouts so you can be praying for these nations. Uh, We began with the Czech Republic and spent a week praying together as a church uh, church family for the Czech Republic. And then last month we prayed for one of my favorite countries, the country of Scotland. And uh, this month we're going to focus on a, a very different country. It's, a, it's the country of Pakistan. Pakistan is a country with um, 1.3 million refugees that have largely come from Afghanistan. The capital, of course, you've heard about in the news, is, is Islamabad, Islamabad. And I want to speak a little bit about the economy that would help you understand what's happening there. Uh, Pakistan, as you can see, is an agricultural region. Uh, there's some light industry that, it, that takes place in this country. High inflation, inflation that as Americans is difficult for us to understand. And as you might expect, uh, poverty greatly affects this country known as Pakistan. Religion, there is, as many of you know, an Islamic Republic in Pakistan with a Sunni majority. It might shock you, and it may not shock you, to learn that 95% of this country is Muslim. 95%. Only 2.4% people in Pakistan consider themselves to be Christians. And I want to leave you with a few prayer needs. And these are practical things that I've sketched out for you that you can put in a prayer notebook. But know this, that fundamentalist Islam, driven by the Taliban, you remember them? By the way, that is not the Taliban, okay? But fundamentalist Islam, driven by the Taliban, is upheld by a a small minority. However, it affects the whole nation, as you know. Uh, There is discrimination and persecution of religious minorities, especially Christians. There is what's known as uh, the, the notorious blasphemy law that imposes a death penalty on anyone who speaks uh, critically or defames the name of Muhammad. And if you speak critically about the Quran, you can receive a life sentence in jail. And so, in short, this is a country where fear and, and intimidation is, is an ongoing threat. Prayer for the church that it will continue to grow. Now, even though the church is being persecuted... In a great way, in a very mighty way, the church continues to grow in Pakistan. So this is encouraging news. And so you can pray like this, that godly leaders would be raised up in Pakistan, that godly men would be trained in Bible colleges and seminaries. And believe it or not, they have training institutions, several of them, in Pakistan where men are trained to teach and preach the Word of God. Pray for believers who come from a Muslim background. You know, you you get baptized in a Muslim country, there's a chance that you could pay the price with your very life. And so Pakistan lies at the very heart of the unevangelized world. Now listen to this. There are over 350 peoples and castes that are considered unevangelized in Pakistan. Now, a statistic that actually blew me away, and this will relate to those of you who are younger, 37% of the population are under the age of 15. 
37% are under the age of 15. 50% are under the age of 24. And what that tells me is this, is this is a, a nation who is ripe to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Young people need to be evangelized. Children need to be evangelized. And what a, what a great segue to focus on global missions and to move to local missions. I want to have the Camp Gilead team come uh, up forward this, uh, at this time. And we want to uh, have a special word of prayer for you. There's one. There's two. There's nine more. There they go. All right. <laughs> that was like a little mini revival. So why don't you guys come up here on like about the second or third uh, stair. And we want to uh, have a special word of prayer for you. Before we do that, my wife's going to pass out a bag of goodies for you all. And uh, for people who are engaged in short-term missions and short-term ministry, there's nothing better than to have snacks, right? You need snacks. And Kirk said, oh, yes. <laughs> I knew I signed up for this for a reason. <laughs> so while Jerrine's passing the goodies out as a gift from Christ Fellowship, and I want to thank Carmel for being so gracious to put these together uh, for you guys. This is the team that has been assembled that will uh, be at Camp Gilead all week to help to minister to, to children there at Camp Gilead. And I just actually heard this morning, we have some children from Christ Fellowship who will be there. Is anyone want to give an amen to that? Is that true? I don't hear anything. All right, that might not be true. Who's going to Camp Gilead at this? Or maybe they're out. All right. Help me out here, Kirk. All right. We, we are excited as a church family for this team, and I want to come down here so I can see them. And we not only want to have a public word of prayer for this, this group of young people, but we want to invite anyone uh, to come at this time and lay hands on them and, and pray a, a commissioning prayer over them and commit them to the Lord. While some of you are coming, I want to give you a challenge, whether you come or not. I want to ha challenge you to, to pray every day, throughout the week for the, the team that is going to attend Camp Gilead. I want to have you pray not only for the team as a corporate team, but to also remember Jordan, to remember Kyle, to remember Kylie, to remember these students by name. And if you have a special relationship with one of these students, send them a text message. Send them an email. Send them an email call them if you like and tell them that you're praying for them. And I'm just excited for them to come back and to, to share with us stories of the grace of God. Uh, I like what Kirk said to me earlier. He goes, this is always the highlight of my summer. This is a great week. And isn't that the attitude we should have towards ministry? So let's have a special word of prayer for you guys. Uh, Father God, thank you for uh, this group of young people. They have a desire to, to serve in the kingdom. And they have a, a special week before them, God, where they will reach out to children, where they will help to disciple them. Uh, some of them, they'll have a chance to share the gospel with them. They'll have, to have the chance to build friendships with them, to play games with them, to enjoy meals together. And I just can't help remember the, the scripture in 1 Corinthians 10 that says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So would you write that verse on the tablet of their hearts? Would you etch that verse on their minds? And may uh, everything they do be for your honor and your glory. I pray that these friendships that are fostered with children would be encouraging, that they would be built on a bridge of love, that they would have the best interests of these children in mind. 
so that they would uh, see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the gospel would capture their hearts, that they would leave changed people. We not only pray for the children that they would leave changed, we pray for this team in front of us that they would leave changed, that you would uh, uh, just do an amazing work of grace on their hearts, that they would come home excited and challenged and ready to move into the school year to serve you all for your name's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. We're proud of you. Well, this is kind of a full morning. It's exciting. While we're making our way back to our seats, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23. His name was J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was born in 1816, died in 1900. He was an evangelical believer, an Anglican churchman, and a pastoral mentor. The Bishop of Liverpool, England, was a man who stood in absolute amazement at the promises of God. And that's where we want to direct your attention this morning, speaking of the promises of God. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. He says, God is continually holding out inducements to us to listen to Him, to obey Him, and serve Him. He has shown his perfect knowledge of human nature by spreading over the book a perfect wealth of promises suitable to every kind of experience and every condition of life. The subject is almost inexhaustible. There is hardly a step in a man's life from childhood to old age, hardly any position in which man can be placed for which the Bible has not held out encouragement to everyone who desires to do right in the sight of God. Ryle continues, There are the shalls and the wills in God's treasury for every condition, speaking of the Bible, about God's infinite mercy and compassion, about His readiness to receive all who repent and believe, about His willingness to forgive, pardon, and absolve the chief of sinners about His willingness to, to do all these things, his, his power to change hearts and alter our corrupt nature, about the encouragements to pray and hear the gospel and draw near to the throne of grace, about strength for duty, comfort in trouble, guidance in perplexity, help in sickness, consolation in death, support under bereavement, happiness beyond the grave, reward in glory. About these things, there is an abundant supply of promises in His Word. Close quote. Now we, as you know, have invested some significant time over the last few weeks in Psalm chapter 23. I've shared this with a few of you and was not planning on doing this this morning, but I, I think I'll do this to show you the, the depth and the riches of God's Word. So I have what's called a, a sermon matrix. There's only one person seated here who knows what a sermon matrix is. It's my friend Jason. And I will send Jason the sermon matrix sometimes with weeks of sermons in advance that I've prepared, sometimes months of sermons in advance. And so several months ago, when we set forth to study the book of Psalms, I sent Jason the, the whole month of, of sermons on the Psalms. 
And three weeks ago, I had set out to preach Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 to 6. And as I, as I prepared that message, I got to about verse 1 and thought to myself, oh man, I'm, I'm never going to be able to do this in one sermon. So I sent Jason an email and I said, sorry man, I hope it didn't mess you up, but we're going to have to take uh, two weeks on Psalm chapter 23. Well, then I went to verses 2 and 3. And I got to the end of the week and I said to myself, oh man, I'm not going to be able to do it. And so I sent Jason another email. I'm really sorry if I messed you up, but we're going to have to go for three weeks. Now, I know what he was thinking. He was thinking, oh man, I'm going to get another email. We're going four weeks on Psalm 23. Well, that didn't happen. Lord willing, it still might happen. You never know. Lord willing, we will finish Psalm chapter 23 this morning. But to suffice it to say, we have looked at two main things. As we opened our Bibles to Psalm 23, verse 1, we began by gazing at the profile of the shepherd. We learned about the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we turned our attention to the promises of the shepherd. And it is so important that we not only hear the promises of God, but that we heed the promises of God, that we we heed the godly counsel of J.C. Ryle. You see, we must cling tenaciously to the promises of God. Now, last week we looked at the first four of the promises that surface in Psalm 23. They go like this. Number one, He enables us to rest. Our shepherd enables us to rest. Second, we learn that He extinguishes our spiritual thirst. We realize that that the shepherd is the only one who can satisfy our thirsty souls. Number three, we learn that He energizes our spiritual lives. Are you low? Are you down? Are you, are, you, are you discouraged? Are you filled with anxiety? It is the shepherd and the shepherd alone who has the power to energize our spiritual lives. Finally, we learn that the shepherd encourages godly living. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who encourages us to, uh, to, to you and I to live godly lives. And so this morning, I want to walk you through the remaining promises that surface in verses 4 to 6. And once again, we refer to these as the unshakable promises. These are promises that can never be swept away. These are promises that uh, there is not one demon in hell that can influence these promises. These promises are like concrete. They are established. They are settled. Here's the fifth promise that surfaces in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4. Look at it with me. King David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The fifth promise I want to highlight is this, is that the shepherd emboldens us with his presence. He emboldens us with his presence. And I want you to see four absolutely powerful observations that will help you to, to take this in. That will help you to see that the, 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 the presence of God is something that can impact us every day in an absolutely astonishing way. Notice first, David's assumption. David's assumption. The psalmist assumes something very, very important in this verse. He assumes that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice he does not say, if I walk through the valley valley of the shadow of the death. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Which tells me this. That David is a top-notch theologian. 
He's a top-notch theologian because he understands the problem of evil. He has a firm grasp of the Christian worldview. Why do I say that? Well, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word, you recall what happened as they fell under the curse. You remember that God told Adam that you can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. And so Adam and Eve fell under a curse. And so walking in the valley of the shadow of death is a result of original sin. Walking in the valley of the shadow of death is something that we have all either experienced or something we will experience. If you're here, and especially if you're a a new Christian or if you're younger or both, you might say, well, Pastor, I've really not gone through anything really significant. I I don't know anyone who's died. I don't know anyone who's experienced cancer. I don't know anyone who's experienced a divorce. I'm getting straight A's and everything's going great. Well, guess what? There will be a day. And some of the more seasoned veterans are kind of chuckling to themselves. There will come a day when you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is David's assumption. But I want you to also see David's alignment. David's alignment. You see, he is in touch with reality. He's in touch with reality. He doesn't try to hide his adversity. He doesn't try to hide his pain. And this is kind of a a sticking point for me. When you see someone, you say, hey man, how's it going? Oh, things are great. Couldn't be better. And the person's dying inside. Or perhaps you've done that. You see someone at school. You see someone at the office. How are you doing, man? Oh, things are great. And you know, you're broke. Your marriage is falling apart. You're filled with anxiety and you're discouraged. This is something I appreciate about David. He is in touch with reality. He doesn't try to hide his adversity. And he has something very important in common with the Apostle Paul. Would you hold your finger in Psalm 23 and go to the pages of the New Testament and look with me briefly at 2 Corinthians. And I want to have you turn there so you can gaze upon all of these different things that the Apostle Paul experienced. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's begin in verse 24. While you're turning, know that the Apostle Paul has been talking about how he's experienced imprisonment, he's experienced persecution, he's experienced countless beatings, and he also says he's been near the point of death. But he continues in verse 24, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. And so like David, Paul the Apostle spells it out. 
And I, I so appreciate this about the Apostle Paul. He says, these are all the things that I've experienced. He too is in touch with reality. I want to have you move from David's alignment to David's action. Look back with me at Psalm 23, and we see his action, and it is a very important and applicable action. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He sets the table. He says, I have experienced this. I am experiencing this. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and here is his action. I will fear no evil. And David's proper response to the valley of the shadow of death becomes a template for us. It becomes a model for us. Why? Because the repeated theme in Scripture, and I've had conversations with many of you about this, some of it autobiographical. You know when the preacher says, these are all the things you should do? Preachers are good at that, right? Someone, yeah, right. Well, here's what I'm here to tell you. I've shared many times from this pulpit how I wrestle with fear. And so when I share these things with you, it's really what I'm doing is I'm preaching to myself. Fear not is the constant and repeated theme in Scripture. Over and over and over again in the Bible, we are told, fear not. In Genesis chapter 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac and he said to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you. Psalm 27, though an army encamp against me, David says, My heart shall not fear, though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. You know what the word confident means? It comes from a Latin word. The word con means with. And many of you know what fide means, sola, sola fide, right? So confidence means with faith. And so when the psalmist says, I have confidence, it means not I trust in myself. It means I trust in my Savior. I trust in the shepherd. Psalm 46 says, though we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Psalm 91 says, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or I love what Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Isaiah 35, 4 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, let me stop. Do you have an anxious heart this morning? Are you struggling with anxiety? Or are you prepared to make a decision this week that just is filling you with anxiety? That when you wake up tomorrow, you're just like, I would just rather stay in bed all day than face this. The Word of God says this, Say to those with an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Isaiah 41, 10, likely my most favorite verse that addresses fear. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 41, 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Isaiah 41, 14, Fear not, 
Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You see, over and over and over again in Scripture, we are told, fear not, fear not. Move with me to David's assurance. David's assurance. Back to Psalm 23, 4. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I'm committed to this. I will fear no evil. What's the reason? For you are with me. You are with me. That is, he emboldened David with his presence. You see, the presence of God is not merely he's there. The presence of God suggests that he is with you. He is providing for you. He is protecting you. He is defending you. He is fighting for you. He is fighting with you. He is for you. John Frame says this about the presence of God. He says, covenant presence then means that God commits himself to us. Would you just let that marinate through your mind for a minute? God commits himself to us. To be our God. To make us His people. And so David maintains the the shepherding metaphor here. And he continues in verse 4. And he says that your rod and your staff, they comfort Him. They're a comfort to Him. So I want to stop now and ask you to, to think about how God emboldens you with His presence. I don't know what kind of valley that you're walking through right now. Or better put, I don't know what kind of valley that you're crawling through right now. I don't know what kind of valley it is that you're on your hands and knees on, the, the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's different for all of us, and I understand it can be scary. The valley of the shadow of death might involve persecution. The valley of the shadow of death might involve a, a struggling marriage. Or a failed marriage. It might involve your job. It might involve your schooling. But know this. Whatever you, wherever you are in the valley, the shepherd is with you. How do we know this? Verse 4. The psalmist says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And so you can stand with David. And you can acknowledge the valley, but you can also stand with David and say with great resolve and great confidence, I will fear no evil. How many of you would say that we are in a time in the United States of America when it's getting a little bit scary? Politically, religiously, economically, on a global basis, there are some scary, scary things happening. I know I've experienced it, but as the people of God, we can stand with David and say, I will fear no evil, for the shepherd promises to embolden you with his presence. Look at the sixth promise with me that emerges in verse 5, the beginning of verse 5. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, that table that David refers to is, is a high summer range. Prudent shepherds, you see, would prepare the range for their sheep 
ridding the range of things like, like poisonous weeds and eliminating predators that would threaten the safety of the sheep. And so the portrait in verse 5 is one of provision and protection. Our shepherd is committed to providing for all of our needs and protecting us from every danger. That is, he establishes, number six, he establishes us in the Christian life. And such is the the heart of the Apostle Paul, who seeks to establish the people of God in the faith. In this case, the Colossians in the faith. Notice what he says in Colossians 1.28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now that was the passion of Paul the Apostle for the people of God. That is my passion for you. And that is the passion of the elders at Christ Fellowship, that you would be a person who is mature in the faith. And so I want to apply these great, these great realities by having you ask some probing questions of yourselves. Knowing that the commitment of the shepherd is to provide for your needs, to protect you from all harm, can you say this, that I am a content sheep. I am a content sheep. Are you delighting in the shepherd? That is, are you delighting in the Savior? Are you thankful for His marvelous provisions? I think you'd agree with me that it is so easy, not only in life, but also in the Christian life, to grow cynical. I have a good friend in Legrand who's a police officer. And I remember I went on a ride along with my buddy and, and I, I saw some things that just shocked me. And I remember visiting with my friend and he says, actually, you know what? He goes, our jobs are very similar. And I'd never thought about that before. Pastor, policeman. Our jobs are very similar. He says you, you deal with people who are disgruntled. You deal with people who go through trials. You deal with people who need encouragement, who need help, who need assistance. And sometimes the people can get down, downright mean. And I said to him, I said, yeah, our jobs are very similar, but you have a gun and I don't. That's the difference. You pack heat and all I have is a set of keys, Right? But it's really true, and we, we continue to talk about this. And he said, you know what? It's really easy for me as a police officer to get cynical. It's really easy for me as a police officer to look out onto the streets, and every person I see I'm suspicious of. And so we compared stories, and I said, wow, it's easy for me to get cynical as well. It's easy to get cynical in the Christian life. It's easy to get cynical in, in pastoral ministry. It's easy to slide into having an ungrateful attitude. And it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It happens slowly over time where one day you wake up and you realize, I'm an ingrate. I'm not thankful for anything. And so you find here that our shepherd is absolutely committed to us. And he is for us. And the promise here that emerges in verse 5 is that he indeed will establish us. Look at the seventh promise in the latter portion of verse B. He says this, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That is, the seventh promise is that He enfolds our lives with His blessing. He enfolds our lives with His blessing. And as I studied this passage, this is something that I had never learned before. And it was absolutely, it was just fascinating to me to learn that especially during the summer months, 
in June, July, and August that sheep are especially vulnerable to insects. I don't know about you, but I can't stand them. Spiders and all those creepy crawlers, I just, they just give me the willies. Well, creatures like deer flies and black flies and mosquitoes and gnats and other nasty creatures have a tendency to drive the sheep absolutely batty. And what I learned in this portion of the study is that there is one creature that poses an even greater threat to the sheep than all of those put together. And I'm not joking about this. You're going to think I'm joking, and I'm not. This creature is called the nose fly. Now, use your imagination. What do you think the nose fly does? Yeah, that's what he does. You got it, don't you, Nico? The nose fly, right up, yep, right up the nose. These pests fly around the head of the sheep. Can you imagine it? Right, Mr. Miyagi, right? They fly around the sheep, and once they gain entrance into the nose, which is just gross, just to think about a fly going up your nose is just gross, they get in the sheep's nose, and what do you think they do? They hatch eggs. And the larvae make their way deeper and deeper, are you getting grossed out yet? Into the nasal passage... I mean, it's enough to make you want to just close up your nose when you go to sleep at night, right? This is just gross. I don't think they do it to humans. But they get into the sheep and they, they get into your nasal passages and these eggs hatch and then they go deeper and deeper into the nasal passages and end up getting into the head of the sheep. And here's what one writer, one writer said. It's the biggest understatement of the day. The result is inflammation and irritation for the sheep. Really? Are you kidding me? Irritation and inflammation. The solution for this problem in the sheep world is to apply a special oil to the head and the nose of the sheep. Now here's the application. The application to the Christian life is simple. Is we need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit to deal with the daily, follow the metaphor, the daily temptations and irritations that fly around in our lives and throughout the day. Paul says it like this, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8.13, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want you to listen to what one shepherd, a a literal shepherd, says about applying the oil to the head of the sheep. It's fascinating. He says this, Only one application of the oil was not enough for the entire summer. He says it was a process that had to be repeated. The fresh application was the effective antidote, close quote. In other words, the oil needs to be applied in a habitual way. And the application for the Christian life is very clear, is we need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Where we surrender to God on a daily basis and He empowers us to live the Christian life. Where He continues to enfold our lives with blessing. So I want to ask you this morning, is your cup overflowing, as David says, as you experience the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's a final promise here in verse 6. 
And it's one that I'm sure that uh, many of you have read perhaps even hundreds of times. It goes like this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, one of the challenges of being a pastor is not merely proclaiming the truth to the people of God, but first applying the truth to myself. And it's something I I work on uh, by God's strength and by His grace every week. Week in and week out, I ask God, how is it that I can make this apply to my life? And this one in verse 6 has encouraged me so much. Why? Because each one of us have a, a unique set of circumstances. Each one, as we, as we begin to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have different problems, we have different trials, we have different temptations. It might be a debilitating disease. It might be relationships that are damaged. It might be a, a destroyed marriage or a, a marriage that's on the brink of disaster. It might involve financial struggles. It might involve a a problem with your job. It might involve facing death. The list goes on and on, but here's the conviction of the Scriptures, and this is what has encouraged me so much this week, and that is no matter what you face today when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or no matter what you face in the future, you can be confident of this. Are you ready? God's goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable reality. As I, as I talk to unbelievers, I am struck, I am absolutely struck with the hopelessness that envelops their lives. You see, both believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, have the exact same kinds of challenges. They have the exact, exact same, same kinds of struggles and the same temptations. But the unbeliever, the big difference is the unbeliever lives without the hope of the presence of God. The unbeliever lives without the hope of heaven. Steve Lawson says, Even death would serve David's greater good, which would usher him into God's immediate presence, where he would enjoy the goodness and the love of God forever, or literally throughout the years. He says, Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God, not even death. Not even death. And so indeed, as David says, and I want you to remember this this week, whatever it is you're facing, remember that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's almost like you say, bring it on. Whatever happens, I have these promises that I can bank on. Now, this final promise that God will empower us in the Christian life with both His goodness and His mercy is an indisputable fact. Yet, as I studied this verse, I asked myself, do we really embrace it? Do we really live like it is true? I wonder if this reality is at the forefront of our minds when tragedy strikes. I wonder if this reality grips our souls when life just doesn't work, when life just doesn't make sense. And as I was 
studying verse 6 and contemplating some of the things that I know you are going through and some of the things that I have experienced. A man came to mind, and he's, he's a man in the Bible, and his name is Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a man, as you know, experienced what I like to call bitter providence. He's a man who even questioned the sovereignty of God. But Habakkuk, in the final analysis, embraced Psalm 23, verse 6. He knew that God was good. He knew that God was merciful. And he embraced the fact that God was for him. Here's what he said at the end of Habakkuk, chapter 3. And recognize that what he'd been through... His, his people were invaded by a foreign army. And you know why the foreign army invaded? Because God decreed that they would invade. God decreed that a wicked nation would invade the people of God. And so you can imagine why. You can, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a great imagination to realize why Habakkuk struggled with the sovereignty of God. But as he got to the end of the book, he writes this. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be in the vines. The produce of the olive fails, and the field yields no food. The flock will be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And so the lesson that Habakkuk teaches us is simply this, that banking on the promises of God requires faith. Banking on the promises of God requires that we we believe what God tells us. It requires demonstrating faith in the shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the last few weeks, we have familiarized ourselves with these eight promises, the unshakable promises of the shepherd. And I want to close by asking you this, a practical question. I want to ask you if you have entrusted yourself to this shepherd. Some of you, as I thought through these questions, some of you entrusted yourself to the shepherd many years ago. You came to the shepherd in simple faith and you said, just like Bree did and just like uh, Sidney did, I trust Jesus. I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus and ask that you would be my, my Lord and my Savior, my forgiver and my leader. But you go through the Christian life and you get to be 30, 40, 50 or even beyond and something happens. You, you lose your first love where the priorities of the shepherd begin to be displaced by the world or displaced by the devil or displaced by the flesh or displaced by the temptation that have overtaken you. Some of you simply need to foster a deeper relationship with the shepherd. And that means you you spend time in his word. It means you spend time in prayer. It means you commit yourself to the local church. It means that you come and you're in accountable relationships. I want to ask, are there any barriers this morning between you and the Good Shepherd? What is it that has, that has created this rift between you and the Good Shepherd where the Good Shepherd is always there? He has not walked away, but what is the rift that has caused you to walk away? Are there any sins that you need to confess? 
Or are there any promises that you need to claim? How is it that you need to approach the shepherd this morning? Some of you may have listened to messages like this. You've heard about the shepherd for years. You know all about him. You have great theology. You even tell people about the shepherd. Do you know it's possible to have good theology and tell people about the shepherd but still not know him? That is entirely possible. I read a few weeks ago about an elder who was in a meeting who was preaching the gospel to the other elders and he got saved. It's possible to know about the shepherd and learn about the shepherd and sing to the shepherd but still not know him. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why we're concerned about the Czech Republic. That's why we have a passion for the people in Scotland. That's why we're going to take this month and pray for the people of Pakistan. That's why the the students, the, the leadership team is going to Camp Gilead. Because they have a passion for the gospel. That faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to to fully entrust yourself to this shepherd and leave, leave no stone unturned. And that means this, you come to the shepherd and you say, I realize, God, that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the final payment for my sin. As we saw illustrated in the waters of baptism, we recognize that nothing I do can merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. It is simply believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask this morning, have you entrusted yourself to this shepherd? And if you have, and many of you have already done that, I want to ask, have you lost your first love? Is there a rift between you and the shepherd where you need to come today and say, God, this is something I've been withholding. This is something that I've been cherishing. John Calvin said that every heart is like an idol factory, pumping and pumping and pumping. But you say, no, I don't struggle with idolatry. Those are the people that become very interesting to talk to. The people that say, I never struggle with idolatry are the most severe offenders. And so this this morning, would you confess that you're an idol worshiper? That you have somehow set the Lord Jesus Christ aside and ask Him, would you forgive me of my every sin? Would you come in, Holy Spirit, and fill me afresh, enable me to live the Christian life with passion and zeal, all for the great glory of the shepherd? Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the the promises that have emerged in this passage. We thank you for the profile of the shepherd that we have spent so much time studying together. I pray, God, that you uh, would draw near to your people now. I know that some are discouraged, some are filled with anxiety, some have marriages that may be rocky, some may be uh, looking for a job, some may be looking for another job. Some of the students are prepared to to go back to to school, be it the grade school, junior high school, or high school. Some are heading off to college, some for the very first time. And I pray that you would would draw near to these young people in a very special way. 
also want to commit the team to you once again as these young people go to Camp Gilead that this would be a, a week that they would remember for the rest of their lives because they had a chance to, to influence people for the glory of God. They had a chance to encourage one another for the glory of God. And so we look forward to hearing uh, great stories of your grace as they return. So we commit them to you. Also commit this church family to you and thank you for the this day that we've had a chance to, to worship together. Would you... Lord Jesus Christ, as our shepherd, continually draw near to us. We thank you that you find great delight in forgiving your people of all their sins. We entrust these people to you now. Amen.